Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would anoint us with your spirit. We pray this because I pray that you bless the preaching of the word, and I pray that we would also all hear the gospel, and that it would resonate within our hearts. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the best ways uh, to form people, stretch people, mature people, and grow people is to take them on a long and difficult journey. The trick works even better if you lead the individual or the group of people out into some sort of wilderness far away from the benefits and comforts of civilization. I found this to be the case while running out trips for a Christian camp in northern Ontario. I found, as many others had before me, that sticking a bunch of teenagers in canoes and sending them down a river into the woods was a fine way of teaching them about themselves, about others, and about God. On such journeys, the young men and the young women involved were given opportunities to quietly meditate within God's creation. They were given opportunities to succeed and opportunities to fail. They were given opportunities to lead and opportunities to follow. It was always beautiful to see how the young men and women grew and developed over the course of their journey. My wife uh, found similar things to be true while leading girls through the Rocky Mountains of Alberta on hiking trips. And in some ways, she's much braver than me because there's grizzly bears in Alberta, uh, which is next level, a different thing altogether, (laughs) something I didn't have to deal with. Well, in a similar vein, we see in the Bible that God is always calling people to get up from where they are and to go on a journey. God called Abraham to give up his comfortable life in Ur of the Chaldees and make his way into the land of Canaan. The journey was difficult and had many bumps along the way, but Abraham got through it and Abraham was the better for it. Abraham's great-grandson Joseph was unceremoniously invited on a journey when his brothers sold him into slavery and sent him off to Egypt. Once again, it was a difficult journey, but God used Joseph's journey to form his character and prepare him for a great role in the salvation of God's people. Moses was called by God out of his comfortable life in Midian and asked to then lead the children of Israel on a 40-year journey through the wilderness. This journey, what we call the Exodus, is perhaps the most famous journey in the whole Bible. Jonah was called by God to leave his life in Gath Hefer and make his way to Nineveh so that he could prophesy to the Ninevites. Daniel was called deep into hostile Babylon to be a witness to the one true God. And the Apostle Paul was called all over the place so that he could preach the gospel to the nations. As one sifts through the whole Bible, the journey stories begin to stack up and one is left with the impression that the God of the universe loves to call people out into journeys. Well, as we dive back into the gospel story this morning, we would do well to remind ourselves that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is leading a group of 12 men on a long and difficult journey. Jesus called these men out of their normal, everyday lives and asked them to leave all behind so that they could follow him on this journey. Perhaps you remember him calling his first disciples Simon and Andrew. Simon and Andrew were fishermen, And as fishermen are so often wont to do, they were casting their nets into the sea, trying to catch fish. 
And then on one fateful day, Jesus approached them and said, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. Well, Simon and Andrew left their nets and they followed Jesus. And this is what you might call the beginning of the disciples' journey with Jesus. Well, as we meet the disciples in chapter 9 of Mark's gospel, it's important to remind ourselves that the disciples were a good way into their journey at this point. They had likely been following Jesus for about two years. They had given him two years of their life. And as they followed him, they learned quite a bit and they saw quite a bit. The Son of God was their teacher and they witnessed his miracles. And yet the disciples still had a long way to go. They still had a lot to learn. And they still had a tendency to make big mistakes. Verses 14 to 29 of Mark chapter 9 record for us what you might call a low point in the lives of the disciples. The scene that unfolds before us involves the disciples making a royal mess of things whilst being generally confused. The scene is messy, chaotic, and indeed tragic. The scene opens with Jesus and his three disciples coming down from off of a high mountain, and when at the bottom of that mountain they find the rest of the disciples fighting with a group of scribes in front of a great crowd with a poor father standing hopelessly by with his demon-tortured son. The disciples had been unable to help the demon-tortured young man, which is what sparked the argument with the scribes, leaving those in desperate need neglected. Looking at this remarkably messy situation and looking at how Jesus responds to the whole thing teaches us a lot about Jesus and what it means to follow him. In a way, this messy scene is like a difficult moment on a canoe trip or on a hiking trip. The mess, the difficulty, and the eventual solution teach those involved a great deal about life and how it works. We're not told that the disciples learned their lesson in the moment, but the fact that this story made it into the Gospels shows us that the disciples often thought back to this moment and learned from it. Thankfully for us, The Gospels are not just a record of the disciples' accomplishments, but rather a record of the disciples slowly but surely coming to see who the Lord Jesus was and what it actually meant to be his followers. Looking at this story, one of the things that we see and learn immediately is that things fall apart when Jesus is not around. Jesus had been up the high mountain with Peter, James, and John, and in his absence, the disciples had let things disintegrate. They had let things fall apart. First, we see that they had allowed themselves to be drawn into a useless argument. The character of the disciples had failed, and they had allowed themselves to be riled up and drawn into controversy by those who opposed the ministry of Jesus. Sometimes, followers of Jesus need to enter into controversy for the sake of defending the truth or for the sake of defending people. But in general, controversy is a distraction from the real business of living and following Jesus. Jesus did not encourage his, de- his followers to be controversialists. He encouraged them to be peacemakers. Once again, sometimes wading into controversy is necessary. But in this story, the story that we have before us today, we see uh, a common scene unfolding. The argument that the disciples were having with the scribes caught the attention of the crowd, and as controversy so often does, it distracted everyone away from the father who desperately needed help for his son. This is something we see happen with the news all the time. 
something is spectacular, something captures our attention, but ultimately it distracts us away from that which is most important. Without Jesus around, the character of the disciples quickly failed, and the disciples lost sight of their priorities. In some ways, the disciples were like a group of employees who were goofing off while the boss was away. The goals, purposes, and aspirations of the boss had failed to make their way into the hearts and minds of the employees, and so when the boss was away, the employees did as they pleased. Bishop Ryle once wrote, Do nothing that you would not like God to see. Say nothing that you would not like God to hear. Write nothing that you would not like God to read. Go no place where you would not like God to find you. Read no book of which you would not like God to say, show it to me. Never spend your time in such a way that you would not like, like to have God say, what are you doing? The point here is not to encourage some sort of frenetic and anxious moralism, but rather to say that we often overestimate the extent to which our character has been formed. Moments of adversity or moments of freedom often prove to us that we haven't matured as much as we thought. This situation shows us that the disciples still needed the continual influence and correction of Jesus in their lives. The disciples certainly weren't ready to go off and do things by themselves. Eugene Peterson once wrote, There are no experts in the company of Jesus. We are all beginners, necessarily followers, because we don't know exactly where we're going. I'm going to say that again because I think it's a profound truth. There are no experts in the company of Jesus. We are all beginners, necessarily followers, because we don't know exactly where we are going. The character failure of the disciples drives this point home. Not only were the disciples unable to cast the demon out of the poor boy, but they were also unable to keep their cool when the scribes started to criticize them. We see in this story that the disciples were still beginners. They still needed Jesus to help them build their character, maintain their cool, and pursue the right priorities. Earlier on in the service, we had read for us a section of Exodus, uh, chapter 32. In that part of the Bible, we hear again about God's people left at the bottom of a mountain. The people of Israel stayed at the bottom of uh, Mount Sinai, while their leader Moses went up the mountain to meet with the Lord. In Moses' absence, things fell apart in an incredible way. The people of Israel who had witnessed God do amazing things and reveal himself as their God, got impatient and built for themselves a golden calf so that they could worship it. They fell into idolatry. It almost beggars belief, but when you read the story, you think, these people have seen the most incredible things, and God leaves them alone for just one minute. And they go and they build an idol and they start to worship it. When God looked down on the Israelites, he said to Moses, they have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. And you know, the thing that is so striking about this story is just how quickly it happens and how readily the people turn away from God. It shows us just how fickle and thick we are as human beings. Another example from scripture is the Apostle Paul's exchange with the church in Galatia. He wrote to the Galatians and said, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. And then Paul went on to write, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. 
And so like the disciples and like the Israelites, the Galatians had seen the great things of God unfold before their very eyes. And yet when given a moment when they felt the absence of God, they quickly turned to less, lesser things. They quickly allowed things to disintegrate. All of these stories tell us something profound about the human heart. They show us, as the great hymn, Come Thou Found, says, that our hearts are prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. The great lesson of this story is that the disciples of Jesus were and are radically dependent upon Jesus. As the other hymn says, they need him every hour. They need his constant presence, his constant empowering. We also see in this story that the disciples were enfeebled or hampered by the absence of Jesus. The disciples were unable to cast a demon out of a young man, and their inability to cast the demon out confused them. They had been able to cast out demons before, but they were unable to cast out this one. And it seems that the disciples had come to think that the power to heal, the power to deliver people from demons, the power to perform miracles, had in some sense been fully and completely given over to them. They seemed to have thought that they could perform miracles whenever they wanted to, independent of Jesus himself. And what we learn in this story is that that was simply not the case. The disciples could not perform miracles at will, but instead always depended upon the empowering of God to do what they did. The disciples learned that they were profoundly dependent, which is the main point of this story. The disciples need Jesus to do what they're called to do, to be who they're called to be. The disciples need Jesus, and they need him there. On one of the out trips that I was a part of, me and my fellow canoers were caught up in some nasty weather. It was raining hard and the wind was blowing. And as we were getting going for the day, I buddied up with one of the young men on the trip and asked him if he would like to sit in the stern in the back of the canoe and steer. And I made sure to ask him if he could steer because I didn't want to get into a tricky situation. Well, once we were out in the middle of the river with the rest of the group on their way, forward, I quickly learned uh, that my buddy did not, in fact, know how to steer. (laughs) Well, the wind was blowing and our canoe uh, was filled with stuff and we were going around in circles. And unfortunately, because the canoe was so packed full, I couldn't just turn around in my seat and steer the canoe. And so for two hours, I had to scream at him, telling him what to do (laughs) as we plowed forward into the wind. Suffice to say, uh, it's Neither of us wanted to spend our morning that way. But we learned a powerful lesson, which is that we often can't do the things that we think we can do, and that we're often profoundly dependent upon others uh, to get done what needs to get done. This is what the disciples are learning, right? They need Jesus. As the Gospel of Mark progresses, we'll see that the disciples get themselves into all sorts of trouble and that they fail to understand certain key ideas because of their self-dependence and unwillingness to rely on Jesus for key information and insight. It seems that they forget those words from the book of Proverbs. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Jesus' response to the whole situation was one of grief. He looked at the unfolding scene and said, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. 
Jesus' expression of grief is similar to the expression of grief that we find in Exodus 32. Looking down on the children of Israel, God said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. In both situations, God is grieved by the hard-heartedness, what you might call the stiff-neckedness, the obstinacy, the faithlessness of his followers. In Jesus' expression of grief, he diagnoses the problem. He diagnoses what's really going on here. He gets to the heart of the very issue. Amidst the chaos of this scene, Jesus puts his finger exactly on what has gone wrong. The problem is that the disciples do not trust Jesus. They don't have faith in Jesus. Now, I don't know how this statement falls on your ears, but what we need to understand is that Jesus' whole ministry with the disciples up until this point had been designed to build the disciples' trust and love for Jesus. The grief in Jesus' expression reminds us that the disciples had been given every reason to trust and love Jesus, and yet they had failed to get to that point. They had failed to see that they ought to be living lives of faith, lives of active trust and reliance upon Jesus. Once again, there are parallels here with the story of the Exodus. The 40-year journey of the Israelites was in some way an intensive school, a school designed to teach the Israelites trust. And as we're looking at the disciples, we see that they too are in an intensive school, an intensive school with Jesus designed to teach them to trust him. To come back to the canoe trip metaphor for just a moment, one of the best things that you can have when you're on an unfamiliar river going into unfamiliar country is a trustworthy guide, which is to say someone who knows what they're doing and where they're going. If you have a guide who knows the lay of the land, you're in good stead. However, the trick with a trustworthy guide is to trust him. A good guide is no good if you don't listen to him and follow him. By nature, people are proud and self-dependent. As such, the process of Christian discipleship is in a powerful sense the process of learning that Jesus is a trustworthy guide who ought to be followed and depended upon. The process of Christian discipleship is the process of training ourselves to deny our instinctual self-dependence, to deny ourselves uh, the privilege of thinking that we know what's going on, and instead to listen and follow Jesus. I remember uh, a few years ago, my family and I were up in the Arctic and made the mistake of walking out onto an iceberg. And whilst on that iceberg, the iceberg started to fall apart, and I think it's the closest I've come to dying. And our mistake was to not listen to the one Inuit person in the group who had lived in the Arctic his whole life and knew a thing or two about icebergs. Suffice to say, we should have listened, and we didn't die, but um, I'm never going on an iceberg again. (laughs) That lesson. Thankfully for us, Jesus is very patient and compassionate. We should not allow Jesus' expression of grief to overshadow the immense compassion that Jesus shows in this story. Jesus did not storm off in indignation, but rather he focuses on the two people in greatest need. He focuses on the father with the demon-tortured boy. Jesus asks the father about the boy's situation, and the father responds with a heartbreaking story. From childhood, the boy had been tormented by a demon, which caused him great physical and spiritual harm. It caused him to be mute and deaf, and generally speaking, simply sought to ruin his life in every way. And such, dear friends, is the evil, wickedness, and perversity of of Satan. 
Due to the disciples' inability to heal the boy, the father is a bit doubtful about Jesus' ability. The father said to Jesus, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus responds with, if, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Jesus then casts out the demon and then perhaps raises the boy from the dead. Jesus has such effortless power over death that we're oftentimes left wondering if someone's actually dead or not. We're left asking questions like, were they just in a coma or were they actually dead? Well, when we're asking the question about Jesus, in some sense it doesn't matter because to Jesus, death, a coma, sleep are all the same. He has full power over it all. And so Jesus' healing of the boy is an incredible act of compassion, but I want us to focus on uh, Jesus' words to the Father. Jesus said to the Father, All things are possible for he who believes, for one who believes. These are words designed to inspire faith and hope in the mind and heart of the Father. Jesus is inspiring faith in a faithless generation. Now I want us to be careful with this important and remarkable sentence. Jesus says all things are possible for one who believes. Some people take this sentence and think that it means something like, uh, something similar to the main ideas found in the Peter Pan story. And the story of Peter Pan believing in something brings it into being. Believing in fairies brings them into existence. Believing one can fly means one can fly. Peter seems to have the power to imagine anything he wants into existence. Now, you may all dismiss this as pure fairy tale, but I find it interesting that this sort of thinking has made its way into the mainstream culture. Secular North Americans will talk about the power of manifesting, which is to say imagining something and believing in something, trusting that that thing will therefore appear in the world, which, frankly, is just a gross overestimation of the human will. We can't make things come to be simply by believing that they're going to happen. Nevertheless, it sometimes makes its way into the church. Sometimes we tell each other that if we simply have enough faith, God will give us what we want. Well, friends, the good news, the good news is that that's not how it works. It's good news because a Peter Pan kind of faith, a Peter Pan kind of believing, simply creates spoiled and dissatisfied little children. That is, in some sense, the genius of the Peter Pan story. It shows us that getting whatever we want, having the ability to manifest whatever we want, being a child for as long as we want, is in fact a recipe for disaster, not a recipe for human flourishing. If faith was simply a means of getting what we wanted, then the Christian faith would produce greedy, spoiled, and avaricious brats. Which, dear friends, is why the people who preach a Peter Pan sort of gospel are often themselves transformed into greedy, spoiled, and avaricious brats. No, friends, the good news is that faith is not a means of getting whatever you want, but rather a means by which we enter into communion and relationship with the one for whom all things are possible. Trusting Jesus, having faith in Jesus, means depending and leaning upon the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the Creator of all things, the Alpha and the Omega, the Great I Am, Almighty God. When Jesus looked into the eyes of that desperate Father and said that all things were possible for those who believe, he wasn't just telling the man to have more faith. He was saying, trust me, look to me. All things are possible with me. He was saying to the father, trust me, I'll guide you through this. 
I'll get you out to the other side. I'll lead you and your son where you can't lead yourselves. I'll help you navigate through the dangers of this world with its demons and sickness and sorrows. And I'll bring you where you cannot go yourself. And then, sure enough, Jesus does it. He heals the boy and all is well. And the father's response to Jesus' words is instructive for us. They're instructive for all who would like to trust Jesus more. The father said, I believe, help my unbelief. One of the great sentences of scripture. It's a powerful little sentence that gives us insight into a key dynamic of Christian discipleship. The unperfected human heart is always a mix of competing, sometimes coherent, sometimes conflicting emotions, motivations, hopes, dreams, aspirations, thoughts, and so on. And so the sentence, I believe, help my belief, recognizes on the one hand that we're a mixture of motivations, right? that we do believe, but in so many ways we don't believe. And then the second part of that sentence is a cry for help. Lord, I believe a little bit, but help me believe more. And you know, the great virtue of the Father is that he is willing to ask Jesus for help. He's willing to cast himself into the arms of Jesus. And that's why the father of this young boy is pretty much the only person who, who comes out well in this story, right? Because he has the virtue, he has the sense to ask Jesus for help. The story ends with the disciples taking Jesus aside by himself and asking him, what's going on here? Why, why could we not do it this time? Why could we not cast out this demon? And Jesus answers by saying, this kind of demon, this kind of situation can only be fixed by prayer. Now what Jesus is doing is not giving them some sort of method. Right? It's not a trick. He's not saying, well, if you pray for these, if you pray for these kinds, then they automatically get cast out. Rather, Jesus is rebuking them and saying, you never asked for help. Things started to go awry. You couldn't do what you were usually able to do. And instead of asking for help, instead of praying, instead of relying fully upon God, you got into a fight with a bunch of scribes. And the whole thing fell apart. And so when Jesus says, this kind can only be cast out by prayer, what he's saying is you need to ask God for help. Your whole ministry, your whole life is dependent upon God helping you. And this reminds us that prayer, prayer is the main way that we humble ourselves before the Lord, and prayer is the main way that we go to the Lord to ask for help. And so the great truth that comes through in this text is that our whole Christian life is dependent upon Jesus. He needs to be there to help us. He needs to be present. And if he's not present, then things fall apart. And the main practical takeaway is that the way to go, to go to Jesus, the way to ask for help, the way to get his help is to pray, to ask him, trusting that he will answer. And so with that said, let's pray. Father, we are all at different points in our journey with you. We are all at different points as we try to follow your son, Jesus. And without you, Lord, we're going to make a royal mess of the whole thing. Without you, the whole thing's going to fall apart. And so we ask that you would continuously draw us to yourself by your spirit, that you would teach us to enjoy long moments of communion with you. And Father, when we're in need, when things are going badly, when things seem to be disintegrating, I pray that you would stop us from trying to put everything back together in our own power, but would instead cause us to pray and to cast our lot upon you. The great things of the Christian life cannot be accomplished 
in our own power. And so we ask for your help. We ask for your aid. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.